Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Jerusalem's old city is normally understood to be split into four quarters, the Jewish quarter, the Armenian quarter, the Christian quarter, and the Muslim quarter. Those designations can be found on maps, in guidebooks, in news articles, and in countless other pieces of writing about the city. But as Matthew Teller points out in his latest book, Nine Quarters of Jerusalem, a new biography of the old city, to be published in the U.S. in September, the idea of the Four Quarters is entirely a 19th century creation invented by a couple of British mapmakers. Instead, Teller's book explores Jerusalem and all its myriad peoples, not just the Israelis and the Palestinians, but the Africans, Syrians, and other peoples that call the holy city their home. Matthew Teller writes for the BBC, The Guardian, Times of London, Financial Times, and other global media. He has produced and presented documentaries for BBC Radio and has reported for the BBC's From Our Correspondent program from around the Middle East and beyond. He is the author of several travel guides, including The Rough Guide to Jordan. He is also the author of Quite Alone, Journalism from the Middle East, 2008 to 2019. Today, Matthew and I talk about how we should actually think about Jerusalem and all the different people that make the city what it is today. So, Matthew... Thank you so much for joining me on the Asia Review Books podcast. Maybe for my first question, you know, why call this a new biography of Jerusalem, specifically of the old city? What's wrong with how the city is normally understood? That's a really good question, Nicholas. Thank you um, very much indeed for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, why call this a new biography? Um, the answer to that um, really stems in how Jerusalem tends to be written about, um, certainly in my culture, in, in English-speaking culture in the West. Very often, um, when I was doing my research, and also in the experience I've had in the city, which we can maybe talk about um, over, over you know, decades of my life, um, I was identifying um, uh, an imbalance in narratives about the city um, that prevailed in as you said in your introduction, in media, in literature, in, in academia, in all other, other media and, and, and formats. Um, that imbalance reflects um, an understanding of how, uh, how Jerusalem fits um, into, in, into the culture um, from outside. It's, a, it's an imbalance which tends to favor Israel. Israel has the overwhelming proportion of um, resources, power, assets, status, visibility, money. Um, and so what tends to happen is you, uh, uh, unless you're actively looking out for other ways of understanding the place, and this applies not just to Jerusalem, but across um, Israel and Palestine as well, you tend to get that dominant narrative. So I was... Um, I was finding on on my trips and my visits and my stays in the city that um, there was a, a, an overwhelming reliance on uh, the Israeli narratives for what is going on in the city, who lives in the city, what the history of the city is. So I I wanted to try and redress what I felt was an imbalance. Balance is is a is also it's a very tricky word. We tend to come across it most um, in relation to the news media, and it implies 
um, it implies a, 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 a seesaw, if you like. There's a, there, are, there are two sides to the seesaw. In this case, the two sides um, are uh, generally Israel, which is very often conflated with the Jewish perspective, um, and a Palestinian side. Um, and so uh, the wisdom goes that if you devote equal resources to both sides of that seesaw, then the seesaw will be level. You know, you will have achieved balance. Um, but as I set out to show in this book, um, that that uh, ideas of the seesaw and uh, you know ideas of two sides and two sides being irreconcilable um, are a fiction. Um, what um, uh, what's uh, what's much more accurate, it seemed to me, was not to reduce Jerusalem. Um, to two sides, but instead to to try and take a broader perspective and to see a broader view. Um, that's why I wanted to try and call this a new biography, um, and it, it reflects the other part of your question, which is what's wrong with how the city is normally understood. Um, it's understood from one direction, um, and I was uh, very aware of wanting to try and look at that that overbalancing and to overbalance in the other direction, if you like, as a as a kind of affirmative action in response to that. So you know, in in the very kind of beginning of your book, you talk about how this idea of Jerusalem um, as being in, split to four quarters is entirely the invention of a couple of British map makers. Um, I wonder if you might kind of talk a little bit about, I guess, how did this image this 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 idea of the old city as four distinct quarters how that came about in the historical record mm. yes it's a it's a really interesting question first of all i should say for people who are maybe not familiar with jerusalem old city is a is a term which is used has been used since the british period of about 100 plus years ago um it's the term used for the walled um area sort of at the, at the heart of the city it's still surrounded by its um, stone walls, which were built um, between 400, 450 years ago. Um, and uh, as you said in your introduction, traditionally, the, the split um, is into uh, ethno-religious uh, divisions. So there's a Christian quarter and a Muslim quarter and a Jewish quarter and an Armenian quarter, although Armenians are also Christians as well. Um, but very often what you'll see on maps is... Um, is this the quadrilateral of the old city divided with these very sharp division lines, as if these are sort of national borders or something, or or you know uh, uh, borders on a map um, of the United States? And while I was doing my research, one thing that that struck me is how the maps of the old city of Jerusalem um, sort of have a parallel with maps of the United States. I was thinking particularly there's an area um, in the southwest of the United States where four states um, meet. Uh, Arizona, uh, let me guess, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado, they all come together at a, at a four corners point, um, which uh, is has a kind of parallel in the maps of Jerusalem that we see as well. But what was interesting to me was that those maps of the United States, of course, also um, erase the uh, lands of the indigenous people who lived there before the states were created. And in that area, it's the, it's the Navajo and the Hopi people. Um, and that same erasure of of indigenous uh, psychogeographies, if you like, um, is also what we see on the maps of Jerusalem as well. So um, uh, uh, for centuries, 
um, prior to the to the modern period, uh, Jerusalem was uh, uh, was divided. Uh, it was uh, divided is the wrong word. Jerusalem's population was characterized um, in areas of settlement, um, and sometimes those areas of settlement of of, of smaller population groups were linked to uh, religious identification. So. Um, um, Armenians would would live and gather around the Armenian church, which is in a particular area of the old city. Um, and other populations would gather around their churches and Muslims would gather on around the walls of the Al-Aqsa mosque compound and Jews would gather uh, close as close as they could to the to the western wall um, in the south. So those areas um, uh, for, for as I said, for a very long time have reflected those, ethno-religious identifications, but they were not exclusive. That's the crucial point. Um, I'm very lucky to have been visiting Jerusalem a lot over my life um, and seeing how uh, people like me, outsiders, pilgrims, visitors, tourists, um, relate to the city and relate to that idea of, of the quarters that they see on the map. Um, and one thing that, that became very obvious to me over those visits was that people had a had a sense of these quarters as being exclusive so uh, if you're looking at the map and you see a muslim quarter and you're not muslim um you know maybe you would imagine that uh, you know only muslims could live there which is not true and maybe you would also imagine as an outsider that only muslims could go there or that it's in some way sort of you know enemy territory or something it's a, it's a hostile zone or something if you're not muslim which is all uh, nonsense it's it's nowhere near the truth um, but that's a problematic result of having these ethno-religious divisions is that an idea of exclusivity becomes imposed on top of them as well. So what you had in the, in the 19th century, um, particularly um, there, was a, there was a period following Napoleon's um, invasion of Egypt and then also of Palestine in 1798, 1799. Um, he brought military forces, but he also brought with him explorers and uh, artists and scholars and, and map makers too. Um, and so what you begin to see in the early part of the 19th century are the first maps appearing of Jerusalem that were drawn from measurements taken in the field. So an actual, um, as we would recognize it, a, a, a cartographic exercise in trying to map the streets and alleys of Jerusalem. Prior to that, Jerusalem was very often depicted in maps um, in a sort of idealized form. Um, it was, uh, you know, people would travel uh, not using maps, people would travel using word of mouth, they would travel with local guides, and very often if they drew maps, they would be drawing them after they returned home as a representation, as a depiction of how they or their communities, their home communities, um, conceived of Jerusalem as a, as a destination, as a spiritual centre. Um, so all through the medieval period, you see uh, maps of Jerusalem represented um, as, a, as a sort of a, a European um, a fortified town, uh, which is not reflecting the reality on the ground, but it's reflecting the, the spiritual reality, if you like, of the people, the pilgrims who would then join these maps after they returned home. In the 19th century, what you start to see are maps um, being drawn for the first time that relates to Jerusalem as it is, as it was then. Um, so the first one appeared in 1818. Um, it, was, uh, it was drawn by a, um, a, a botanist from Prague, um, and he identified, you can see on the map, you can, you can search for it, I talk about it in the book as well, you can see on the map um, an, a, a, an area labelled as 
uh, Judenstadt as Jewish quarter, uh, but it is not. It's not demarcated, and that's the only identification of a population uh, within the walls. And you can trace uh, through the early nineteenth century a succession of maps drawn by, um, often by English or by German visitors. Uh, which uh, focus on areas of population that were of interest to Europeans and visiting Americans. Um, so you see uh, the Jewish quarter is very often identified, but you start to see um, areas of settlement, like I said, around the Armenian church being identified, around the Catholic church, the Latin church, um, around the Greek church, Greek Orthodox church. Um, but at no point until this particular map that I have identified um, do you see these uh, four very clear and sharp ethno-religious divisions as they appeared later. So that, that story revolves around um, political turmoil in the, in the 1830s, which was um, consuming uh, uh, Jerusalem and Palestine and the wider area as well. There was a rebellion um, led from Egypt, <coughs> excuse me, which challenged um, Ottoman rule in Constantinople. Um, there was also a political uprising in Palestine as well. There was a power vacuum. The European powers who were um, starting to be more involved in Jerusalem and the Holy Land with a, with a, with a sense of, of exploration of, of biblical, uh, the biblical past, um, those European powers were jockeying for position. Um, that's a period in the in the late 1830s when you start to see the first foreign consulates opening in Jerusalem as well. Um, there was a, a diplomatic initiative in 1840 to try and sort of calm the situation down. Um, that failed, and then uh, Britain, very shortly afterwards, uh, does what Britain often did in this period, which was it essentially bombed Palestine into submission um, and handed it back uh, to the Ottoman Sultan. Um, British forces, military forces, however, remained in place. Um, and that period of 1840, 1841, you see um, uh, uh, groups of royal engineers in particular being sent on missions to map the coastline of Palestine and to map the interior of Palestine. Um, and in March 1841, two uh, British officers were sent to Jerusalem to map the city. Um, and this period as well as all this geopolitical uh, uh, coming and going, this period was also um, uh, marked with, as I said, sort of a, a, um, a greater religious or religiously inspired intervention. Um, so Britain's presence, um, uh, which resulted in the opening of the consulate and resulted in, in, in also a greater presence through the 1840s, 50s, 60s, was focused around missionary activity. So um, Protestant evangelical uh, missionaries were present in Jerusalem through this period, through the 1830s, um, in very small numbers, but they were starting to, 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 to try and um, um, evangelize the people of the hope, what they saw as the Holy Land. Um, but they came up against barriers. So it was very, very difficult to evangelize Muslims because Ottoman law at that time stipulated uh, death for people who converted away from Islam. And it was also difficult to evangelize Catholics and um, Orthodox Christians as well, partly because there was little um, motivation in those communities to convert. 
but also because France at that time was protecting Catholic rights in, in Jerusalem and in Palestine, um, and Imperial Russia was protecting Orthodox rights. So if you start to intervene and start to mess with the communal balance, if you like, um, you could easily spark a diplomatic row, which Britain wanted to avoid. So for all those reasons and other reasons as well, Britain focused its energy on trying to convert the Jews of Jerusalem. Um, and this mission meant that the Brits needed to know exactly who lived where in Jerusalem in order to be able to, to focus and target their evangelizing efforts. So um, you see at this period in, in 18, uh, this is 1842, the first Protestant bishop of Jerusalem is appointed and arrives. It's a man called Michael Alexander who was uh, who was formerly Jewish, he was formerly a rabbi, and he was converted uh, to Christianity and he became the bishop. Um, and there's a whole story around that bishopric as well, uh, which uh, is too involved to get into at this point. But with um, Bishop Alexander came a chaplain, um, a young man called George Williams. Um, he was 27 uh, when he arrived in Jerusalem, um, and he was only there for a little bit over a year. Um, but he fancied himself a scholar. Um, so, uh, as part of the work that he did while he was there, um, was research for a book. He published his book, um, in 1849, um, and with the book was included a map and that map was drawn from the Royal Engineers survey, which had been done a few years previously. And that map, which George Williams reproduced in his book and he, uh, to which Williams added labels and detail and street names and also quarter names as well. That map is the first time that we see the four quarters of Jerusalem. You see Christian quarter, Muslim quarter, Jewish quarter, Armenian quarter, pretty much exactly where they are or actually exactly where they are today. Um, so there's a direct line from George Williams in 1849 directly through to all the maps that people like me and tourists and pilgrims and visitors to Jerusalem are using today and have been using um, in the, you know, almost 200 years since, 150 years plus since. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. And, and the idea of why those quarters, which weren't present before George Williams, but have been present in pretty much every single map produced since George Williams, uh, why they have survived. They have survived, um, my feeling is, is because they suit the um, colonial um, um, uh, narratives of you know, successive waves of Jerusalem's rulers since the 1840s. Um, those ethno-religious divisions uh, don't exist, have never existed. The, uh, the, the, the population areas within Jerusalem were much were previous, uh, prior to the 19th century, were much more organic. Uh, they were related to trade, or they were related to to population origin. Um, there was some there was some focus, obviously, as I said, on religious settlement, but that wasn't the overriding um, uh, uh, subject of the division. And the exclusivity, which uh, is with us today, also wasn't present at that point as well. Um, that's a very very long and involved answer about the four quarters, but that gives you know some idea of the background and some idea of of why I wanted to write this book in order to take that narrative, examine it as best as I could, identify it as a colonial imposition from outside that doesn't reflect the reality on the ground, 
um, and then to subvert it. And you know, I hope I've succeeded to do that. Well, I mean, let's well, let's let's talk about the reality on the ground then a bit. You know, as you know, I mean, it, this is these kind of formal demarcations of of the quarters. I mean, a doesn't match reality, and it it kind of what's the word? It, it simplifies what the diversity of Jerusalem actually is. Um, which you kind of investigate in your book. You talk about all these communities that uh, don't have quarters named after them. Um, and I wonder if you might tell us tell us a, a few stories from the people you met uh, during your research for the book, whether whether they're um, from the Armenian or Christian community or from communities that that don't have that that don't have a quarter, um, quote you know quote unquote. Um, just kind of, kind of some of the some of the interesting people you met during your research process mm. i mean there were there were hundreds i would almost say mm. thousands um but but yeah i mean there were some that that stand out in my mind there's one um and you know i could talk for hours about this i'll try and keep it as 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 brief as i can um there was one in particular that sticks out there was although there were several that stick out there was one uh, there's one area in the in the northeastern corner of the uh, of the old city um where there's a small compound, um, which um, is the uh, is now identified, or well, has been identified for for more than a century as the Indian hospice. Um, in this uh, hospice, I should say, in this context, in the Jerusalem context, refers to a a place um, which is connected to uh, Islam and particularly to to mystical Islam, the Sufi Islam. Um, so this. Uh, this hospice, this this hospice compound, commemorates the visit to Jerusalem, or legendary visit to Jerusalem, um, by uh, uh, a Muslim saint called Baba Farid, um, who originated in India. Um, and the legend goes that he travelled to Jerusalem something like 800 years ago um, and stayed for 40 days um, in the city in a cave, uh, praying and meditating. Um, and the, 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 the cave in which he, he prayed is still preserved today within the walls of this, of this hospice compound. Um, I was very lucky to be invited to go in and go down into the cave. It's, it's, it's an unimpressive space in and of itself, but for the spiritual reverberations that it still seems to hold, it was a very, very impressive place. Um, there's a you know there's a there's a small cave there's a mosque there there's um, and within the walls of this compound are now a library and uh, also residences as well for a little cluster of Indian Palestinian families or really uh, it's it's one extended family who have served as the caretakers for the compound for the last hundred years or so. Um, there are many many stories and I go into some of the stories in the book as well. That's a particularly fascinating place. Um, to see a, a, an Indian presence um, and a vibrant, uh, you know, strong Indian presence in Jerusalem, um, very nearby to there, not very far away at all, a few, a, a few steps, a few meters walk, um, is an area uh, within the walls of the old city which um, has traditionally been a, a population settlement for the Dom Gypsy people of Jerusalem. Um, gypsy is a is a Difficult word in English has a difficult history. Um, it's uh, it was invented in the 15th century um, in England um, when English people looked at 
uh, new arrivals who were coming into England at that time and didn't know where they came from, didn't know who they were, uh, and they thought they came from Egypt, so they called them gyps gypsies um, as a sort of abbreviation. Um, and since then, the, the word has acquired uh, pejorative overtones in some contexts. Um, for some people, but gypsy is a pejorative word, and for others it isn't. The people of Jerusalem um, uh, who I spoke to and, and who form this community self-identify in English as, as gypsies, so I'm going with their usage of their own term. Um, but they have um, a fascinating history. They, their, their history also goes back um, to India. Um, 1,500 years ago or so, there were these great waves of migration coming out of India westwards. Um, and as people moved, um, some settled in Armenia and the areas uh, sort of in the Caucasus region now, um, and they settled and they, and they are the Lom people of today. Um, still others moved on and they moved into, into southern and southeastern Europe um, and traveled on into northern and western Europe, eventually to England as well and, and further. Um, and they are the Rom people or the Roma people. Um, and similarly, people moved uh, into the uh, Arab lands of the Middle East. And they are the Dom. Lom and Rom and Dom are all connected, are all share um, a, a common cultural heritage extending back to India. Um, and the Dom people are uh, extraordinary, very understudied, very underappreciated. And, and, and uh, they, uh, as so often with their communities, they live a sort of a, a hidden life below the surface. Because they identify as who they do, they occupy a space, um, a very narrow space, in between Israelis and Palestinians. They, are not, they don't call themselves Israeli and they don't call themselves Palestinian, although they all speak Arabic um, and many, almost all of them are Muslim as well. They identify as Dom and they, that's, their, that's their space that they occupy. Um, they suffer terribly <laughs> from both Israelis and Palestinians in terms of um, uh, racism um, and, and social and economic uh, deprivation as well. Um, they're very often uh, Dom children, uh, very few Dom children will, will, will graduate from school um, and people, uh, unemployment rates are very high. People, if they have a job, will have a very menial job, a service job in uh, street cleaning or drain cleaning, sewers or whatever. Um, there's a very extraordinary person who I was very lucky to meet, um, who's a woman called Amun Slim, who um, she wouldn't describe herself as a community leader, but she's a person who has, for the last 20 plus years, taken it on herself to try and raise the prospects uh, for people in her own community. So she runs um, a, a, a project which um, supports uh, Dom children um, to go through after-school clubs for extra tuition um, and uh, hopefully then to graduate and to go on to university, and some have. Um, she runs uh, vocational classes for, for Dom women. She runs linguistics classes to teach um, not just um, Arabic, but also English as well and other languages to uh, Dom adults. Um, she's an extraordinary person. <laughs> Um, active in her community, retaining um, Dom cultural heritage, trying to cling on to the, the Domari language that they have, which is um, inevitably coming under massive pressure, but is clinging on still. Um, so that, I mean, that was another extraordinary chapter to be able to write um, for this book. 
there are many others thinking about racism and discrimination as well. There's a there's an African Palestinian community um, who are resident pretty much exactly at the gates of Al Aqsa, in a particular area of the old city called Babel Majlis, um, and they trace their origins back to uh, several areas um, in West and Central Africa, Nigeria, Chad. Um, often Sudan, although Sudan can be confusing, it doesn't necessarily relate to the to the Republic of Sudan that we know today. It may refer um, to a sort of pre-colonial area which spreads all across, you know, Western and Central Africa, um, all the way out as far west as as Senegal and Mauritania as well. Um, so the African Palestinian community um, uh, comprise about four hundred and fifty people or so, Muslim people. Um, living in two compounds uh, uh, on either side of a, of a small lane, like I say, right at the gates of Al-Aqsa. Um, and they have also experienced um, a great deal of racism um, directed at them uh, for their skin color in particular. Um, but they, very interestingly, unlike the Dom, um, have gained uh, a degree of acceptance and a degree of, of um, integration within um, wider Palestinian society, partly because they have, as a community, thrown themselves into the, uh, the 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 politics of the Palestinian national struggle. So they're very active in resistance, um, and because of that, um, there's been shifts in in wider social attitudes towards the African Palestinian community living in the in the midst of, of Palestinian society. It's another very, very interesting subject. Um, and I go into a bit in the book as well. There are lots, I don't want to, to, to go on too long, there are lots and lots of these pockets of um, interest for, uh, within small population groups within the old city, which, um, as you've said, and as I said previously, which uh, whose presence is erased by this... Uh, imposition of a of a four quarters um, uh, 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 format, if you like. You know, well, one thing that kind of, and and and, and it's probably an obvious question, um, especially for those who who have been to Jerusalem, have lived in Jerusalem. Um, but you know, like, like Jerusalem holds such a central place in in Judaism, in Christianity, in in the Muslim faith. Um, as you know, the as one of the most, if not the most, holy city in in these various religions, and yet you know people still live there. They live their lives there entirely normally, you know, with no. It's it's just a for many people, it's it's um it's a place to live. And I wonder, like, like did did how did people how how did the people that you met like did they ever think about this at all? Or was it just like, no, Jerusalem is where we live and it's, it's sacred stature is kind of in the background. That's a really, really interesting question. Um, yes, people do think about it. Um, I mean, one thing we could, uh, we could try and look at is what, you know, what a holy city means. There's been, um, there's been some interesting um, scholarly work done on these questions recently. Um, there's a particular professor, Michael Dumper at Exeter university in Britain, who's written, um, about what the meaning of an old city is and how that um, affects um, policy and and social structures, uh, not just in Jerusalem, but he's looked at, um, I think, Rome and Lourdes and uh, Varanasi and um, I think also Lhasa. 
other cities which are which are deemed to be holy and what that means. Um, but in Jerusalem, uh, people that I've talked to uh, uh, are very aware of it, obviously, um, because it's a, it's an unavoidable part of uh, daily life um, for Muslims, uh, also uh, for Palestinians, uh, sort of across the board, whether Muslim or not. Al Aqsa, the the mosque, the the um, the the uh, Al Aqsa is also a confusing term. Al Aqsa is often referred uh, in English to mean um, the mosque. With a, there are two mosques on on the in the compound that um, sort of rises above Jerusalem. One with the golden dome and one with the silver dome. Uh, the golden dome is known as the dome of the rock, and the one with the silver dome is often called Al Aqsa. Although um, in Arabic and in Palestinian usage, that's not accurate. Al Aqsa refers uh, to the whole compound. Um, with its many, many different prayer spaces. So um, when I say Palestinians are proud of Al-Aqsa, what I mean is the whole of, of that compound, which is known in, uh, in Judaism as the Temple Mount. Um, but that, that sense of pride and that sense of, of ownership um, is, is crucial, is key to Palestinian um, identity, not just national identity, but cultural identity and religious and spiritual identity as well. And like I say, not just among Muslims. Um, but but what a holy city means um, in regular everyday life is uh, much more difficult to put your finger on. There was one person um, who I'm, I'm just gonna, as I'm talking, I'm just going to flip through the book and find the quote. Um, this was Amun Slim. This was the, the the woman that I spoke to before um, about um, uh, where she's the she's the Dom community activist. And I asked her, um, and actually this, <laughs> this is page one of the book. This shows how important this, this question that you've come up with is. Um, I asked her, what does it mean to be a holy city? And she says, this is, quote, I don't see Jerusalem as holy at all. What even is holy? You feel that the old city is the most pressured city in the whole world. Behind that wall, you see so many aggressive, tense people. It's supposed to be this holy city, city of love and sharing. But honestly, I don't see it. Um, end quote. Uh, that's um, that's her words. And then she went on um, to say, um, "quote I'm connected with the old city beyond politics and what people feel. I can't change that. I love it. Nothing is more beautiful than my home, Jerusalem. My morning walk in the old city has a beautiful magic." Um, so she moved on from the idea of, of all these aggressive, tense people um, undermining the idea of a holy city and moves into this. Uh, sense of romantic possession and ownership, which is also a very strong, very powerful feeling among Palestinians in particular. Um, it's uh, it's a very very thorny question as to what um, what Jerusalem's or how Jerusalem's holiness has impacted um, its daily life um, and continues to impact its daily life. Um, there's another quote actually. While I'm thinking about it. Um, I'm going to read this out if I can. This is a slightly longer quote, um, but it's about a page or so. But it reflects, I think, very powerfully um, on exactly these questions. Um, this is um, this is uh, this comes from a chapter, an interview which I did with a, a man called Jack Persekian, who is uh, a gallery owner and, a, and an artist, a photographer. He's a he's a curator, museum curator. Um, very active in uh, Palestinian contemporary art, um, and he spoke at length 
um, about this idea of holiness and how it relates to Jerusalem. So with your permission, I'm just going to go and, and, and read it like a page or so, which is a couple of minutes long. It's a very, very powerful quote, which um, I was happy to reproduce in full. So this is, um, this is Jack Persekian, quote, Jerusalem is becoming a mere symbol only, a religious symbol, a symbol of God and religion and nothing more, a token capital of Palestine. Holiness empties the city out because the holiness of the symbol becomes far more important than the living population. There's a whole generation of Palestinians, even two, who don't know what Jerusalem looks like. They see it in pictures, but it doesn't mean a thing. It's very disturbing. Jerusalem is becoming less and less of a place where you can see people living, enjoying their life, creating a future for the younger generation. De-symbolizing Jerusalem comes through education. That's what art is trying to do, to make people think outside these prescribed narratives, look at things from different ways, express ideas and thoughts and feelings. It's about liberating yourself. Once more individuals are liberated from within, you can eventually start to evolve a society that is on its way to freedom. Otherwise, you can talk about freedom and liberation from here to Timbuktu, but if the people are shackled with all the baggage of religion and taboos and dominion by these bankrupt political parties, then it won't mean anything. Yes, art can liberate. The people of Jerusalem are on their way to freedom and liberation, but there's a huge obstacle, and that is finding means and possibilities for those people who are gradually realising their potential. They're hitting up against finding a job, affording the city, decent living conditions, being able to manage with all the complex maze of laws and regulations the Israeli government imposes in order to live as a Palestinian in Jerusalem. People see no possibility for growth here, even if you're brilliant, a creator. If you've just invented something or you're an industrialist and you want to open a factory, you can't do it in Jerusalem. You'll have to go into the West Bank or you'll leave the country. It's a catch-22. People who I've seen manage to liberate themselves and gain that potential opt to leave Jerusalem and make their lives abroad. Those who stay here, a good number of them are stuck, hopeless, helpless, desperate, depressed. One keeps trying and keeps working, but you're pushing against a huge wall. We, and by this he means uh, the team that he works with in, in the gallery that he's, uh, that he's there um, uh, heading up, We've managed to keep a voice coming out from Jerusalem in art, in all the circles that art revolves in locally and internationally. The voice insists that Jerusalem, with all its historical religious baggage, has a contemporary art identity and is engaging multiple issues through the lens of art and the work of artists. It's saying that Jerusalem is worthy of attention. Unquote. That's the end of the quote from Jack Persekian. Um, which I think is a very powerful statement about liberation, about, about the role of art, and about um, the, uh, the, the, the overwhelming presence of holiness in the city and how that can undermine um, individual human aspiration. I'd like to end by, in some ways, this is, this is two questions, but they kind of get at the same thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible, I think, to talk about Jerusalem and not talk about um the tensions the conflict the 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 disagreement dispute however you want to characterize it between um israel and palestine um 
especially especially concerning um, Israel's control of all of Jerusalem, as well as the other kind of occupied territories um, in Palestine. Um, and I guess, you know, first of all, I mean, how how has that kind of decades-long conflict, um, you know, how do you see that reflected in today's Jerusalem? And then to kind of maybe spin on from that, um, what's changed in Jerusalem since you did the lion's share of the report of, of the research um, for your book? Wow, those are um, those are two big questions. Obviously, the first question is is, is a huge one. How has the um, in essence how has the occupation impacted Jerusalem over the last few decades? Um, it would be impossible for me um, mm-hmm. to go know, into to, all to... the ways. Sorry. Yeah, I know it's it, it's it's an impossible question in in the mm. in the in the in the span of one conversation. Um, mm. Can I get at all the way it's reflected? But kind of like, are, were there were there any particular maybe to kind of reframe it? Were there any kind of particular things you saw where which you to you kind of exemplified the the how the conflict has made its mark on on the city? Um, I, the conflict, um, I would call it conflict. I'd call it an occupation. The occupation. Um, impacts every part of everybody's life in the city um every hour of every day and every day of every year um it's ever present it's it's unignorable um the the it's unignorable physically um in the sense of of the uh the military presence that israel maintains on the streets um but it's unignorable in a thousand other ways as well in in bureaucratic um interventions in um, e- economic and 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 political interventions in in daily life. Um, I'll I'll give you just one example, which uh, is also very visible, um, even to an outsider. Often, many of these things are are, are, are hidden to outsiders. Either an outsider will not know, uh, has no reason to know um, the the restrictions that the Israeli municipality may impose on a shop owner in terms of how they may. Um, manufacture their goods uh in the old city or not or where, where they may store their goods or not or the taxes or the or the 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 bureaucratic impositions that the municipality may come up with uh, all of that is hidden um and a thousand other things as well what isn't hidden um and which is very visible um even to tourists and, and pilgrims and visitors uh visiting the city um is the surveillance so um, across the old city, there are something like 400 CCTV cameras um, uh, installed and maintained uh, and, and monitored by uh, Israel, by the Israeli authorities. Um, they are present on every street in the old city, on every alleyway. This is an area which is not large, I should say. We, maybe we should have said this earlier on, that the old city within the walls is less than one square kilometer um and within that area there's about thirty-five thousand people living there 90 percent of whom are palestinian and they are facing again every minute of every day hostile surveillance through these cctv cameras which are very visible they're mounted on the walls um uh, everywhere you look in every direction where you look at you know a corner of an alleyway might have three or four cameras pointing in different directions this way and that way and sideways and whatever to cover all the angles um they're monitored 24 hours a day from a remote control center um 
in West Jerusalem. Um, there are accusations that the Israeli police are using face recognition software as well to track people through the streets. Um, they've uh, there was an investigation done in 2019 by an American TV news network. Um, the Israeli authorities denied that that was the case, um, at least in the old city. Although there have been um, there has been um, uh, a suggestion that face tracking is being done outside the walls in East Jerusalem. Um, that's a moot point. But either way, whether face tracking um, software is being used or not, the presence of cameras everywhere that you know um, are being monitored all the time uh, is psychologically extremely damaging. Um, it's It mirrors um, a 19th century sort of prison technique called the panopticon, where um, a guard would would be stationed in the middle of a of a circular prison yard um, with the ability to look into cells all around the the prison without any of the prisoners knowing whether they were being spied upon at that particular moment or not. Um, and it doesn't. I mean, it's very easy to imagine. The, I don't have to go into the details of how um, psychologically um, uh, corrosive such a thing would be but the presence of those cameras um means that life in the old city is different from how it might be were those cameras not to be there um, and those cameras are just one very visible and very present example of how the occupation has affected the people and the, and the, and the life the daily life within the walls of the old city of jerusalem so I think that's a good place to end our conversation with Matthew Teller, author of Nine Quarters of Jerusalem, a new biography of the old city. Matthew, I actually have two final questions for you. Uh, the first is, you know, where can people find your work? And the second question is, um, what's next for you? <laughs> um, that's very interesting. Yeah, people can find my work. I'm very searchable online. Um, people can find my work on my website, which is uh, just my name, matthewteller.com. Um, I'm active on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Matthew Teller. Um, what's next? Um, there are projects in the pipeline is, is all I can say at the moment. Um, I've got ideas um, about how uh, to write about um, uh, Israel and Palestine and Jerusalem again in a different way. Um, it's very all-absorbing um, this city, I've been very lucky to have been visiting um, most of my life. I, my first visit was at the age of 11, um, an awfully long time ago. I'm in my 50s now, and I'm very, very lucky to have been going um, to and from and to and from and living there for a while and coming back and being, ba I'm based in Britain, um, and moving around as much as I have has been a massive privilege um, all of my life. Um, but it means that uh, the place gets into your bones, um, and um, I get the feeling that this is not going to be my only book um, about that place somehow. Um, but watch this space. There will be news uh, coming uh, and watch my social media as well. There'll be news coming at some point about what is next. Well, I look forward to learning more about it. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. 
You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in around and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with William Kirby, author of Empires of Ideas, creating the Mar University from Germany to America to China. But before then, thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us today. Thanks so much, Nicholas. It's been a pleasure.